0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guest in the studio today is Diane Whitmore Schanzenbach, director of the Hamilton Project and a senior fellow in economic studies at Brookings. She is on leave from her position as an associate professor at Northwestern University, where she is the chair of the program on child, adolescent, and family studies at the Institute for Policy Research. And stay tuned in this episode for an election update from John Hudak and also. For another installment of our new Metro Lens segment, in which Martha Ross talks about her new research on employment and disassociation among teens and young adults. Diane, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm delighted that you're here. Um, well, the Hamilton Project itself is now observing its 10th year. It was founded 10 years ago. I remember uh, discussions about it the year prior about what should it be named. It was named, as you say, the Hamilton Project after. Uh, the man I consider the second most important founding father who was never president after Ben Franklin. Why is it called the Hamilton Project?
1: I guess um, Alexander Hamilton, you know, so what happened was everyone read the book by Ron Chernow, and they were inspired by his dedication to good governance, to sound fiscal decision making, and so on. And we thought that, you know, our think tank, which is, its mission is to advance America's promise of opportunity, prosperity, and growth was you know, right in, aligned with how Alexander Hamilton worked. Of course, he was the first uh, treasury secretary, and he he set as a foundation a lot of, you know, the institutions that are with us today.
0: Uh, there's this really famous Broadway musical. It's won all kinds of awards about the Hamilton Project. Have you seen it?
1: I have seen it.
0: Wow. Yes. Do tell.
1: We were uh, Hamilton lovers even before the smash Broadway hit, And, you know, but our name also came from this book by Ron Chernow. And so when the founders of the Hamilton Project read it, they thought it's going to inspire us to found an economic policy think tank within Brookings. And of course, when Lin-Manuel Miranda read it, he thought hip hop musical. Yeah. So I could see, you know, why you'd come to either of those conclusions.
0: You have in your mission statement um, a quote uh, from Hamilton. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but he talked about how uh, prudent aids and encouragements on the part of government may stimulate human enterprise. And that seems uh, quite fitting to the kinds of policy research and recommendations that, that you guys are all about. Um, a, uh, a big question, though, uh, around public policy is why do we need good public policy? Why do we need this kind of think tank? Why do we need think tanks at all? I mean, in, in your case, you're an expert on children and families and, and child poverty, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, why don't we just expect parents to make good decisions for themselves and their children?
1: Sure. Well, I come back to some basic of economics when when I think about why can't we just leave all of this to parents. And there are two main reasons. The first is that there are market failures. And the second is that investments in children lead to public goods. So I'll start with the first about market failures. So really in a perfect world, um, we would imagine that children themselves would you know be able to invest in whatever it takes for them to grow up to be healthy and successful, economically successful, and so on, people. We entrust their parents to make the best decisions on their behalf. But parents can't generally borrow to finance preschool or to move to a location with better public schools and so on. So the fact that we're not able, you know, the, the, basically the children themselves are not able to borrow today um, to invest in things that'll pay off 30 re- years down the road is a market failure which requires public policy. The other is that there are uh, public good aspect of children. So when children are well-educated, when children are healthy, that has spillovers to, to everyone else. So our economy works better. Uh, other things like criminal behavior is reduced down the line. Um, you know, Use of the social safety net is reduced down the line. So we actually all have a stake in investing in kids.
0: And Before we get into the, some of the specific policy ideas that you and your colleagues have looked at, I want to ask you one more question about your own background, sure. I think it's really interesting. Um, you have a doctorate in economics, you're an economist, but you also have a bachelor's degree in economics and religion. Uh, so how do the fields of economics and religion intersect for you?
1: Sure. So I always thought, especially as an undergraduate, that economics was the way that we study cost and benefits and how we trade those off, and religion helps us understand uh, societal norms about what's right and wrong and basically how to put the weights that we like to put on the different costs and benefits. I would also say that the study of religion as an undergraduate was fascinating. Um, I study, of course, today I study poverty and how we address poverty has just a lot to do with what are our norms in society and those change over time and so on. I'd further say that that religion major taught me how to closely read texts, how to write and how to research in non-quantitative fields. And I find that, especially as I did some of my work recently has gone into his historic documents, and I found that I was, you know, familiar with that from my old religion major days. So I think, that, you know, it's part of the beauty of a liberal arts education is to be able to have... You know, to have a diversity of experiences, to have a diversity of skills. And I really am grateful that I was able to double major. Well,
0: let's move on to uh, the unfortunate fact of childhood poverty in America. What percentage of American children lives in poverty today?
1: About 22% of children live in poverty today. And something that has, something else that's worth remarking on is that. Childhood poverty has become more and more concentrated over time. So today, a majority of children attends a high-poverty school, for example.
0: And are they uh, more concentrated in certain neighborhoods, certain regions of the country?
1: The child poverty rate is higher in the South, to be sure, but there are poor children everywhere. And I think by and large, you're right to think that they're concentrated in urban areas, but there are plenty of poor kids in the suburbs and in rural areas, too.
0: Now, I know there is a poverty threshold. There's a there's some number that defines poverty for a family of four. I, I don't know what it is off the top of my head. Uh but so that's the absolute poverty
1: It's about
0: $25,000 a year, just <laughs> FYI. Okay, $25,000 a year for a family of four.
1: I think that's a family of three. three. But.
0: Um, but that that's just a measure that's an absolute measure. But people who are near that measure but above it are also in what we might call near poverty, right? So the problem is perhaps larger than just the absolute number. Of people in poverty, children in poverty.
1: That's right. We don't think that there's some magic cliff above which you're no longer in trouble. You know, you're no longer facing any of the downsides of, of poverty. And in fact, a lot of our social programs are people are eligible for those social programs up to 130 or 185 percent of the poverty line, or even higher.
0: But in terms of uh, the, the socioeconomic, socioeconomic. Um, strata or the quintiles, the bottom 20%, the top 20%. Um, I read in some of your research that parents in that top fifth of U.S. households uh, by income spend seven times as much money on their children as do parents in the lowest fifth. So on what are they spending all that money and, and what effect does it have?
1: You know, on all sorts of things. So they spend it on on books. They spend it on other educationally enriching activities, you know, on d- trips and all sorts of sorts of things that we think of as investments in kids, right? So uh, a a famous finding is that, um, you know, high-income families have, you know, on average something like 160 children's books in the home and low-income families, actually many of them have no children's books in the home at all. And so you can imagine that, you know, if we think about childhood as an investment right that when we invest in kids make sure that they are learning a lot make sure their brains are growing and therefore they're able to be more successful as adults their both their you know economic capital their human capital their health capital and so on are to large extent formed in childhood you know if you've got a kid who doesn't have books in the home who doesn't get those enriching experiences, which we think, you know, help their brain to grow, that kid's at a disadvantage.
0: I've also seen data uh, that uh, children in the higher income brackets hear more words spoken in their household before they're even five. I mean, millions more words spoken than kids in the lowest, and that must have a dramatic impact.
1: That's right. That's what we That's what we think. Uh, You know, so there are a lot of correlational studies on this. And so we know that poor children have a very different childhood than wealthy children do. Um, You know, wealthier children are more likely to have a two-parent family. Those parents, you know, have higher education levels themselves. And you can imagine all of those things add up to a lot more advantage.
0: Let's let's stay on this topic of childhood education and poverty. It's something you've you've done a lot of research on, you and your colleagues. So, how does growing up as that young child in poverty, with fewer books, with fewer words spoken, with fewer enrichment opportunities, how does that affect the child's cognitive ability um, compared to children from the higher um, income families?
1: Sure. Well, we know that lower-income children have lower test scores, and um, you know they probably don't have you know different innate abilities, but just because they've had systematically fewer um, investments in them, you know they they don't score as well. Now, something I'll be quick to add, as an economist, um, which is these correlations don't necessarily reflect a cause and effect relationship. So really from a policy perspective, what we want to know is, well, what would happen if we gave families more income? Or what would happen if through various policy initiatives, we found a way for parents to encourage parents to read more to their children or to say more words? How much of that gap would get closed? I don't think we have, you know, great rigorous scientific evidence on that. Uh, and in fact, the old conventional wisdom was that not that much would close. But I think the n- newer research that's coming out is much more optimistic than that, and thinks that yes, money does matter. Yes, if you know, we can get parents to change their parenting behavior, and when that happens, you know, that manifests itself in better observable characteristics of kids, like higher test scores and things like that.
0: Well, the Hamilton Project that you lead is obviously known for rigorous research, but it's also known for policy recommendations. And and one policy idea that we always hear about, it's been around for a long time, is Head Start, um, or, or more generally, uh, preschool uh, interventions and preschool education. Can you talk for a second about whether those kinds of uh, social policy interventions work?
1: Sure. I think we've got good evidence that access to early childhood education improves kids' outcomes. So the most famous work is from Nobel Prize-winning economist James Heckman, and he does a cost-benefit calculation, and he says that for every dollar we spend on high-quality preschool to very disadvantaged kids, we get $8 back in society. But as we, just, that was done on um, a study, the Perry Preschool study that was done in the 1960s. The landscape has changed, and so as we think about how to make policy today, uh, just the the lay of the land is different. Of course, now we do have Head Start, and a lot of kids attend Head Start. Many more children, both high and low SES children, go to preschool today than they did, let's say, in 1980. There's been a secular increase in all of this. And so in a Hamilton Project paper that I wrote a few years ago, we put forth the idea that... uh, that I think fits the literature quite well, and there are a lot of really high-quality studies around this that finds that the return to, um, the payoffs to preschool education depend crucially not only on the quality of that preschool program that the child attends, but also what the child would be doing otherwise. So in the 1960s, when some of the classic studies were done, Low-income kids didn't had very unenriching environments, right? So this was before Sesame Street started. You know, uh, there were just there were just fewer. Um, I guess what's the word? You know, there's fewer
0: fewer outlets for their budding intellects.
1: Ex- exactly. Whereas over time. Things have shifted. My predecessor Melissa Carney has this nice paper on what happened with the introduction introduction of Sesame Street, and we find that, you know, more of you know more and more investments that we make as society in kids, manifest themselves in terms of higher test scores and so on. So I would say that today's low income kid is better off than the one was in the 1960s. They're much more likely to go to preschool anyway, even if there's not, let's say, a high quality. Uh, universal preschool program in their state. And so then when we come come in and increase the likelihood that a kid goes to preschool, let's say by introducing a statewide preschool program, it doesn't change what the student was doing by as much as it used to. Now, it still makes kids better off, but just as a result, the payoff to those investments is necessarily smaller than it was in the 1960s. Now, the best calculations that we can make indicate that it's still a beneficial thing, a beneficial investment to make. The benefits outweigh the costs when it comes to expanding preschool access to, especially low SES children in the United States. But the payoffs are lower than than they
0: used to be. Well, I'll make sure to include a link to that Hamilton Project paper and many others in the show notes on our website. Um, let's take a quick break here. In the episode, to hear from John Hudak with an update on what's happening in the presidential election.
2: The 2016 presidential campaign began a serious transition away from the tumultuous primary season as Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton effectively secured the math to become their party's respective nominees. In the process, they opened a new and perhaps more tumultuous period, firing some of the first warning shots of what will be the general election campaign. Donald Trump began new lines of personal attacks on both Hillary Clinton and former President Bill Clinton. Trump's goal is to further undermine Clinton's perceived honesty and trustworthiness. Hillary Clinton has been test driving a number of slogans and lines of attack in an effort to do what no Republican candidate was able to do this year to Donald Trump, find the right messaging to beat him. Over the next several weeks, Trump and Clinton will mix traditional campaign stops with addresses to important national organizations like the NRA for Donald Trump and labor unions for Hillary Clinton. These efforts work to stir up enthusiasm among the base, collect endorsements, and talk about the issues most important to each organization's members. It appears quite clear that mathematically, Trump and Clinton will secure the necessary delegates they need to officially become their party's presumptive nominees during the June 7th primaries in California, New Jersey, New Mexico, and elsewhere. Despite the clinch date approaching, both parties are facing internal battles. Republicans are struggling to unify establishment figures in support of Trump, worrying about his viability in November. Among Democrats, Senator Bernie Sanders' ongoing battle with the Democratic establishment, the DNC, and DNC Chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz has sparked questions about whether Sanders and his supporters will use the party convention in July as a political protest instead of a means of rallying the party. All eyes are on how Senator Sanders and other still uncommitted, high-profile Democrats like President Obama and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren will respond to Clinton officially crossing that threshold of delegates she needs to become the Democratic nominee for president. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening on the campaign trail.
0: And now, back in the studio with Diane Whitmore, Schanzenbach, let's talk about food and nutrition, uh, which is uh, an area that you've very recently had an event on, Uh, I think with the Secretary of Agriculture, and put out some policy papers. Uh, One of the topics in this area is food insecurity, and you, you found that one in seven U.S. households is what you called food insecure. What is food insecurity?
1: So food insecurity is a different measure of economic distress. It's not the same as poverty, uh, but it's this measure of economic distress, which is measured as whether a household reports that it had difficulty at some point during the year providing enough food for all of its members due to lack of resources. And so this measure not only measures, you know, how much income the family has, but how much spending power they have, essentially for basic needs like food.
0: And what are some of the characteristics of food insecure? households.
1: So one thing that's very interesting about this measure of economic distress is that it goes higher up in the income distribution than you might expect. So fully 33% of households that report being food insecure have income that's greater than twice the poverty level. That's well outside of the reach of food support programs like SNAP and school meals.
0: So those people aren't, and their children aren't eligible for those social programs Right, so because typically they they're
1: middle class, right. or we think of them as middle class. So one thing that we're still trying to unpack is you know, the lingering tale of this Great Recession that we're still you know, climbing our way out of seems to be more you know, economic insecurity for lower-middle-income families.
0: So the, the, the food security program today from the federal government is called SNAP. It's an acronym. I can't remember what it's for.
1: Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It right. used to be called food stamps.
0: Right. So it's not food stamps anymore. It's SNAP. Um, and you've done long-term. You've done research on the long-term effects of access to both food stamps and now SNAP on children as they become adults. Uh, so does the program work?
1: We do think that the program works. We think it works quite effectively. So this paper that you were describing um, is a very nice natural experiment. We looked at the introduction of the food stamp program originally as part of the war on poverty. And the way that it was rolled out was uh, it was introduced on a county by county basis over a very long period of time, about 12 years. And so what we were able to do is compare two kids who were born in different counties. And let's say they're at different ages, you know, at different times. And so, you know, a kid in one county, you know, the program came in when she was one years old. In the next county over, the program came in when the child born in the same year was seven. So we can compare those the later outcomes of those those kids. This has been a series of papers that I've been working on. But the paper that just came out this April uh, looked at what happens in the long term, of course, the war on poverty was a long time ago, and so people who were children during the war on poverty are now in their 50s. And so we can see, you know, what happens to their eventual education attainment, what happens to their health. And we find two main findings. The first is that in adulthood, kids who had access to SNAP, to the food stamp program when they were young, have are healthier in terms of um, their health outcomes in adulthood. And in particular... They're less likely to be obese or to have metabolic syndrome, and what's interesting is you know there's a related line of research that looks at uh, people who are exposed to famine and other natural disasters in their early life, and. The research from there finds if you were undernutrited in early life, you're more likely to be obese and have higher levels of this metabolic syndrome when you're an adult. So, we wanted to know well, what happens if it goes the other way? Instead of making people suddenly have less food, what happens if we expand their budget sets and give them more food? And we find that you know, the opposite happens that better nutrition in early life leads to healthier outcomes. Um, in adulthood. And we find that for both men and women. The other main finding that we get from this is uh, just concentrated on women. And I th- think it will be very interesting to, in follow-up studies, try to understand this the mechanisms behind here a little bit more. What we find is, especially women, have better economic outcomes as a result of having access to this program when they're young. So what we think is going on is, you know, this was of course before the school meals programs had hit their full stride. So, um, having more resources in the house meant that you know people were likely more like you know able to eat. So, they we're going to school not hungry anymore and better able to pay attention in school. And so that pays off by having higher graduation rates. What we find for women is, uh, you know, they're less likely to be poor as an adult. They're less likely to be um, actually on. Public assistance themselves in adulthood, they are have higher educational attainment, they have higher uh, earnings, and so on. So it's really exciting, and I think uh, helps establish even more this case that we need to be thinking about childhood even more as a time for investment in you know developing our future workforce, our future future population.
0: And that ties back to your earlier comments about um, market failure and how it's an important thing for. Um, the government to do to foster these public policies that that can have these beneficial effects down the road.
1: That's right. So you can see why I think this is a fascinating subject to study, because people are very complicated and it's it's really interesting.
0: And it kind of ties, and it definitely ties back into Alexander Hamilton's view on the on the uses of of government in helping to kind of steer the market. He, he believed in free markets, but he also uh, believed in a government hand in the market. That's right. Uh, let's go back to SNAP for a second. It's, so it's a program that's been around since the War on Poverty, I mean, earlier as food stamps. Um, is it a program, though, that despite its success, does it need to be changed, tweaked? Are there uh, recommended changes you would suggest?
1: So I think it's a fundamentally sound program because it is relatively simple and it builds... On fundamental economic insights. So, when I teach my undergraduates, I always teach them, um, you know, what happens to the budget constraint when we give people in-kind transfers like like food stamps. Now that said, you know, if I were the czar and got to choose, you know, how to how to reform things a little bit, I do have two ideas. One is drawn from a policy proposal that we re- released just this week at the Hamilton Project uh, where the author Jim Ziliak argues that the benefit level which was essentially set in the 1960s and then has just been adjusted for inflation since then is too low today so benefits are about four dollars and fifty cents per person per day and lots has changed uh, in terms of um, in terms of you know food, production technology. And something that Jim points out in his Hamilton Project proposal that we released this week is that under the assumptions that go into the food stamp benefit for, formula, they assume that f- families are able to spend about 14 hours a week preparing food. Now, in today's economy, nobody actually spends that kind of time preparing food. And so he argues, and I think he's persuasive at the end of the day, that you know families should be able to substitute less of their own time for more money, and that the the food stamp benefits, the SNAP benefits should be um, adjusted for that. So that's the first thing. If I can add the second, um, you know, basic insight from economics is that people respond to prices. And so, in fact, in a Hamilton proposal that I wrote back in 2013, this was my first experience with the Hamilton project, uh, I proposed that we change uh, the prices for healthy foods for SNAP recipients. So this was based off of a randomized control trial that occurred in Massachusetts, where what happened was any time a SNAP recipient would buy fruits or vegetables, they would get a 30-cent rebate for every dollar that they spent. Because this was a randomized control trial, there was very good evidence on the impacts of this, and it found that you know, go figure, people buy more fruits and vegetables when the prices are lower. That's a fundamental economic insight. And I think that that would be – that that is ready for prime
3: time.
0: Yeah, you know, there's this perception that some people have, you read about it sometime, uh, in the in the vein of kind of hostility toward um, SNAP recipients. They're spending their money on candy bars and Coke.
1: You know, so the evidence seems to be that when people have more money to spend – they spend that extra money on healthier foods, right? So in economics language, I would say that healthy foods are a normal good. And so our best estimate is, you know, if we took Jim Zilliac's advice and increased the benefit by 20%, we would see substantial increases in fruit and vegetable intake, uh, intake of dairy products, and so on. And actually, he, they predict less consumption of fast food.
0: Can, can U.S., do you think the U.S., should spend more on social programs uh, for children in terms of um, health and nutrition and education?
1: I do. I think that we're dangerously underinvesting in in children today. And, you know, there's emerging research that indicates that, you know, if we spend more on schools, if we, you know, make sure that families have more income or if we alleviate food insecurity... That has a payoff, not just today, but down the down the line in terms of more productive people when they grow up. And so I think the evidence points to there's there's still a lot of worthwhile investments to be made, and it is a shame that we're not making them. And I hope that we'll start making more of those investments.
0: And one of the reasons I, I love working at Brookings and getting to host this podcast and interviewing experts like yourself is that... Um, it strikes me that there is such a thing as good public policy. It it makes sense. But there are critics of, say, social insurance programs um, who claim that it makes recipients dependent upon government. What do you say to that kind of critique?
1: So this paper that I described earlier, I think, is the first paper that's really been able to look at the causal impact of that. Now, people who make the argument that if you're on assistance when you're a kid means you're more likely to grow up to be on assistant, are really making those arguments based on correlational research. And what we want to know is you know, the cause and effect here. And so in our paper, what we find is when children you know, get access to the social safety net program, when they become adults, they're actually less likely to be on public assistance, not more likely. And of course, we think the mechanism is that they're better able to have, you know, the, develop the human capital that they need to succeed in the labor market. So I actually think that that argument is exactly backwards.
0: Well, before I let you go, Dan, I want to call attention to uh, the most recent Hamilton Project work that y'all have put out. It's about nine uh, facts and lessons from the Great Recession. Um, people can go find it on your website, hamiltonproject.org. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thanks so much. As I said, you can learn more about Diane Whitmore and Schanzenbach and policy recommendations from the Hamilton Project on its website, hamiltonproject.org. And now, in this Metro Lens segment, Martha Ross looks at employment trends for young people in the workplace with a focus on the Washington, D.C. region.
3: Hello. I'm Martha Ross, a fellow at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. Young people in their late teens and early 20s stand at a pivotal point as they transition into adulthood. A key marker of adulthood is financial independence, and for most people, that means working for a living. Now, no one expects young people to work at the same rates as adults over age 25. The years between 16 and 24 are prime years for what economists call investing in human capital, an activity known by most people as going to school. It's no secret that education beyond high school is critical to getting a good job. So finishing high school and earning a post-secondary credential are top priorities, whether those credentials are two- or four-year college degrees, apprenticeships, or certifications. But early work experiences can provide valuable opportunities for young people to learn new skills, gain experience, and expand their networks. Evidence suggests that it can improve employment prospects down the line. And the earlier that people are exposed to the workplace, the earlier they will learn such skills as teamwork, communication, and dependability, skills that employers say are in short supply. In a recent report, Nicole Svalenka and I looked at employment trends among teens aged 16 to 19 and young adults aged 20 to 24, comparing them to prime age workers, those aged 25 to 54. The report provides data for the U.S. and the country's 100 largest metropolitan areas. Let's take a closer look at the place Brookings calls home, the Washington, D.C. region, which includes the District of Columbia and the surrounding Maryland and Virginia suburbs. Echoing national trends, the employment rate in the Washington region among teens, young adults, and prime age workers all fell from 2008 to 2014. The employment rate refers to the share of the population that has a job, and it fell most dramatically among teens, from 33 to 26 percent. In other words, in 2014, only one in four teens worked at any point during the year. Drops among young adults and prime-age workers were not as steep. Among 20 to 24-year-olds, the employment rate fell from 72 to 68 percent, and among prime-age workers, it fell from 85 to 83%. The rates for young adults and prime-age workers are above the national average, which reflects the D.C. region's strong economy. The teen employment rate, however, is below the national average. A variety of labor market and educational trends are at play here, but the bottom line is that different groups of teens experience the low employment rate differently. Some voluntarily withdraw from the labor market to focus on academics and extracurricular activities, and others would really like a job but can't find one. So you worry about some teens more than others. One theory is that formal programs providing connections to the labor market are especially helpful for disadvantaged young people without family or community networks to help them find jobs. These differences often break along the lines of race and ethnicity. In 2014, the unemployment rate among black and Latino teens was close to 30% compared to 10 to 13% among white and Asian teens. In fact, even at the peak of the recession, the unemployment rate among white teens, 21.4%, was lower than the black rate in non-recessionary times. Differences by race and ethnicity are also apparent when looking at disconnected youth, those aged 16 to 24 who are not working and not in school. An estimated 8,500 teens and 21,000 young adults in the D.C. region are disconnected, which increases their risk of unemployment and poverty later in life. Almost 80% are black or Latino. More than two-thirds have a high school diploma, suggesting that getting these young people on a better path involves reducing the high school dropout rate but also strengthening the transition from high school to post-secondary education in the labor market. These data show that economic prosperity does not automatically lead to inclusion. The D.C. region's strong labor market relies heavily on importing workers from elsewhere. Imagine what we could accomplish if we did a better job of preparing our homegrown young people. Check out the full report and explore the data using our interactive feature, at brookings.edu backslash metro.
0: And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Kolzer, with editing help from Mark Holzer. Plus, thanks to Chris Anichi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abelahi and Rebecca Weiser, Brianne Smith, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. And if you haven't checked out our brand new podcast, I think you'll love it. It's called Intersections. The most recent episode features a conversation with two scholars on global poverty. Find it on iTunes and on our site at brookings.edu intersections. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.